0: the Pomeps Middle East political science podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. This week, we're joined by Omar Ashur. He's the author of the new book, How ISIS Fights, Military Tactics in Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Egypt. We also talked to Max Galin about his article, Informal Institutions and the Regulation of Smuggling in North Africa. And finally, we talked to Etouh Sajbaj, who, along with Melanie Kamet, is the author of a new article, Navigating Welfare States in Divided Societies. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the PullMaps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Max Galin at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. He's the author of the recent article, Informal Institutions and the Regulation of Smuggling in North Africa, uh, published in, the, in Perspectives on Politics. Uh, Max, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about this article and the project you're drawing from. Um, So the article's kind of got a theoretical side and then
1: uh, a larger um, empirical um, side, which might be the kind of sexier or more interesting part. So I'll start with that. So empirically, it's a discussion of how smuggling is regulated in North Africa today. And uh, by North Africa, it mainly looks at the uh, southern border of Tunisia and at Morocco's border with the Spanish enclaves and with Algeria. And by kind of the regulation of smuggling, it really means the kind of informal deals and arrangements uh, that structure how smugglers move their goods across borders and the thing that the payments they have to make to police officers or customs officers, the amounts of things they can bring across and All of these are things that we don't often think of as being regulated smuggling has this reputation of being under the radar of the state, but the kind of central empirical point this argument makes is that despite that common suggestion, it actually really is often very tightly regulated. A lot of smugglers spent their days not escaping the police. They spent their days waiting in line. And uh, a lot of their interactions with policemen or or um, other state agents is a lot less one of kind of cat and mouse and often a kind of relatively rule-based um, arrangement. And that I think is, is an interesting theoretical point. It's an interesting empirical point because it also um, highlights that a lot of the things that we assume are under the radar of the state are actually quite very much on the radar of the state and it also highlights that a lot of things that we often assume that kind of all mixed up together can be quite structured so the original working title of the article was tomatoes and terrorists (laughs) and that was because there's this common assumption as well that everything that kind of moves illegally across borders all moves across channels that we can't see and uh, as a consequence, you know, these kind of porous borders that have been created by small scale smugglers of tomatoes or cigarettes could now be abused by more nefarious actors like, um, like terrorists or, or people who smuggle guns. And the empirical point that the article makes is that because the regulation that uh, smugglers of tomatoes, for example, use is um, specific to certain goods, it means they move their goods across the border under the watchful eye of the state and through these notes and arrangements that would not be available to other forms of smuggling, such as, you know, arms or, or people who are on watch lists. That doesn't mean these other things don't exist, but it means they're segmented, and that it means there's, there's a whole kind of regulatory environment around it. And that then kind of comes, is, is where the informal institutions come in, where the theoretical point of the argument comes in. And um, it really kind of, Despite the fact that smuggling seems this is like kind of exotic and very specific topic, it tries to cut to a, to a much bigger theoretical discussion within political economy. And that is that issue of regulation at the intersection between the market and, and the state. And a, a lot of kind of very mainstream political economy theories from your kind of Asimoglu and Robinson, your can kind of access orders to kind of Moustak Khan's political settlement all make assumptions that, that formal regulatory institutions, such for example as, as formal laws and the institution of a state are fundamentally different than informal institutions. That informal institutions, these kind of regulations between smugglers, these kind of uh, uh, regulations outside of the formal law are never enforced really by an external third party, that they're, they're never impersonal. And as a consequence, they're typically small scale, they're typically um, somewhat inefficient. Um, and the regulation that I look at in, in this case, in this regulation between smugglers or the regulation of smuggling, in this case really is, is quite large scale. It, it uh, organizes the, the uh, operations of, of thousands and thousands of smugglers. It has some amount of um, impersonality. So it doesn't really depend on whether you're the cousin of a certain policeman. Often it just means that you are you know a local citizen who can operate through these relatively informal regulatory structures. And um, as a consequence, it, it really provides a challenge of not only how we commonly think smuggling is regulated or not regulated, but also how we commonly think regulation outside of the state really works. So that, in a, in a nutshell, is, is what that argument's trying to do.
0: Well, so before we come back to the uh, theoretical issues, uh, tell us about the fieldwork uh, that went into this. It can't be easy to, to, uh, to study uh, informal smuggling and illegal activities. Um, it's not easy. It's
1: it's often incredibly time consuming. And I think there's a reason that kind of good work on, on smuggling in North Africa, um, be it, you know, like Rafa um, Tabib or Kamara Roussi or Hamza Metteb and my work is often based on, on PhD projects uh, because it's incredibly time consuming to build up contacts, to build up relationships, um, to deal with the fact that a lot of uh, interviews fall through at the last minute because people get cold feet about talking to you. Um, but also this, this regulatory aspect that I was describing and this, this um, kind of state toleration and state structuring I was describing, also really, really helps with field work, because it means a lot of the things I'm asking about are not things that anyone has to be worried about. You know I'll turn around and tell the police about it. Police knows about it. The police is involved in structuring it. which then of course makes negotiating a relationship with the police a little bit more difficult, but it really helps, um, helps kind of interview people also learning the language of it, learning how people think about these activities, how they frame it, um, uh, you know, not typically talking about business rather than smuggling and these kind of things is is really, really helpful. And um, asking about the institutionalization of it's also been really helpful. So asking people how they meet their supplier rather than who their supplier is, these right. kind of things kind of really help um, develop these interviews and, and and get talking to people and, and build relationships. But uh, it, is it's tricky and, and time consuming, but it's been, a I think, really productive exercise nevertheless.
0: Yeah, so why did you choose the, uh, the three major locations that you chose? Um, for a
1: variety of reasons, some of which are entirely practical. So like access to, to Libya itself, for example, was, was impossible for me as was um, doing research on the Algerian side of the border. But I think it's also a fascinating case study because a lot of um, research on smuggling Traditionally, is or a lot of good literature is based in sub-Saharan Africa, and a lot of it is based in um, areas of conflict or areas of what some people would refer to as uh, fragile statehood or weak statehood. Um, so, doing this kind of re- research in in two states that have a certain amount of capacity and have a reasonable amount of control over um, over their territory really highlights that these type of arrangements are not only due to states being, you know, weak or unable to enforce certain things, we see states that are able to enforce certain things choosing not to. And that makes them an interesting case study. The second thing that really, really makes these cases interesting is that we've seen a lot of action around smuggling in both Morocco and Tunisia. We've seen both of these countries having developed large smuggling economies for for decades and decades but the last couple of years kind of rediscovering their relationship to them or renegotiating their relationship to them. So in Tunisia, especially after 2011 and after the revolution, we've seen a kind of renegotiation around the role of of smuggling in this kind of national political settlement. Um, In in Morocco, we've seen that a little bit um, with uh, the rise of kind of new investment of the state in the Northeast. And then both countries have seen challenges across the border with Algeria increasingly cracking down on smuggling, and with the uh, conflict in Libya. So as a consequence, there's been a lot of activity around that, a lot of rediscussion of that regulation. And obviously as a scholar, external shocks are are helpful to observe underlying regulatory structures. So that's why both of them have been quite uh, productive case studies.
0: You make a really interesting argument that it's not uh, just about state capacity then. And so a lot of the solutions that people come up with such as hardening the borders or increasing surveillance capabilities maybe aren't gonna help all that much.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, I think especially the hardening the borders is a particularly interesting point, both because it's been very, very prevalent in the region in the last couple of years, but also because it's got quite a lot of counterintuitive effects. So we have seen as a result of a kind of general global concern about border porosity in North Africa, we've seen an increasing fortification of North Africa's land borders, partly um, on the initiative of the states in the region itself, but also partly as a response um, or kind of as a Uh, in connection to the international financing of this, with the involvement of the European Union, the German government, the American government. And this is built on this assumption that the problem with smuggling is that states can't control it, that states can't crack down on it, that it's under their radar, that it's under their infrastructure. And hence the solution is, you know, we we build a wall, we improve the infrastructure. Um, But what that infrastructure often does, and that's something we've seen in the region a little bit, is it's first of all, usually relatively inefficient against the things you really want to crack down on. So your kind of, you know, certain people moving across the border that might be on police watch lists, for example, or the movements of, of narcotics um, and kind of high-value illicit commodities is usually not really deterred by that kind of infrastructure because the networks that move them are capitalized enough and are connected enough usually to still move their goods across these barriers it might make it more expensive to move these goods across these barriers, but that's often not a, not a deterrent to these networks. In the worst case scenario, it's an incentive for these networks to solidify or to, um, to increasingly control the market as the costs go up because it raises barriers to entry. So in terms of the goods, we really wanna crack down on walls and, and, and ditches and all these other things and often not as effective as, as we think they are. But on the other side, all these small scale activities that have been tolerated for a long time, and that are described in the paper. All these kind of everyday livelihood smugglers, be that gasoline in the Moroccan-Algerian borderlands, or be that um, uh, foodstuffs and and, and small electronics, all these type of activities also phase the rising costs that are imposed by increasing infrastructure. And as a consequence, a lot of these activities have collapsed in the region over the last couple of years. And that's, I guess, the kind of empirical observation that goes beyond the beyond the time that the paper studies, but especially the last couple of years with both this new infrastructure, but also um, the effects now of the pandemic has been that a lot of these uh, smuggling economies in North Africa are increasing under, under pressure and under stress. And uh, given that they're a very, very substantive part of livelihood strategies in the borderlands, that means that borderlands are incredibly under stress in, in the region. I think that is something that we are going to increasingly see the results of in the next couple of years. And unless we really understood the role that smuggling had in these areas we're not going to stand the results that we're going to see
0: and in these highly informal economies across much of the region uh, it stands to reason that things like smuggling would play an important part in sustaining them
1: um it does i mean informal economies are incredibly broad categories so in in, in all these countries, um, that includes an enormous diversity of activities, including you know, um, in, in agriculture and um, in, in small services and in small manufacturing, but it also includes um, retail that is connected to smuggling and it you know, includes um, goods that have been brought uh, across the border and then sold in uh, you know, the, the souk libias in, in, in Tunisia or the kind of the Spanish markets in Morocco. The thing that's important to highlight there, though, is that smuggling is not just connected to informal economies, it's also connected to formal economies. A lot of the goods that are being smuggled into North Africa are produced by formal companies, including um, particularly on, you know, in the free trade zones on the Arab Peninsula or in uh, in East Asia. And they are a way for some of these companies to get their goods into uh, an attractive market without paying any taxes. So while it is certainly connected to informal economies, it's also connected to wider global formal economies that we often don't think about.
0: So give us an example, I guess for one last question, give us an example of how this kind of filtering works then. How do the tomatoes and the terrorists get separated out on these borders?
1: Um, So that comes again back to these these kind of uh, informal arrangements or deals that that I talked about in the beginning and that I maybe talk about a little bit too, um, too abstractly. But if we think about, for example, um, the border crossing between the border between Tunisia and Libya, um, a lot of the smuggling that has occurred there has occurred through the official border crossing. So some of it also goes on the back of four by fours through the desert, but a lot of it goes to the official border crossings. And there have been for most of the past couple of years, you know, with kind of stops and starts as a result of conflict and the renegotiation of these arrangements. But there's been for for most of the last couple of years, a set of kind of informal rules of how you could smuggle through that border crossing. And these rules keep changing, but they will usually include some kind of statement like, if you're bringing through a certain type of goods under a certain value in a certain type of car, you can go through and you don't pay anything on either side. If you bring through certain types of goods, Uh, on higher than a certain value, you're paying amount X to certain politically connected actors on the the Libyan side, and then amount X to certain actors on the Tunisian side, and and then you go through. But that will be limited to certain goods. So you could be a carpet smuggler, and you could operate through this arrangement. You pay off a couple of people according to these rules, and you bring your things through. Um, You would not be able to smuggle arms through that same arrangement. If you're trying to bring arms through, you'd have to go across the border, around the border crossing, and you have to pay people off in a different way. But that classic arrangement that a smuggler of carpets or a smuggler of tomatoes um, would use would not be available to you if you're smuggling arms. It gets a bit interesting because arms are not the only thing that is excluded. But over the past couple of decades, that arrangement has often also excluded um, goods that have been smuggled by politically well-connected figures such as, for example, sports apparel, especially during the Ben Ali period, Um, You know, some goods that were uh, smuggled uh, exclusively by politically connected actors couldn't be smuggled through these arrangements themselves. So they segment things not just in kind of, you know, the the guns and the the drugs and the terrorists and the tomatoes, but also due to a wider kind of politicization of the market for, for smuggled goods in these countries.
0: That's so interesting. We've been speaking with Max Galeen about his article, Informal Institutions and the Regulation of Smuggling in North Africa. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined today by Aitu Sajmaj. He's a pre-doctoral fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Middle East Initiative and soon to be a postdoc at Stanford's Center for Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law. He's along with Melanie Kamet, the author of a new article in the journal Governance entitled Navigating Welfare Regimes in Divided Societies, Diversity and the Quality of Service Delivery in Lebanon. Aitu, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this article. So um, this is an article for which we
2: collected the data in Lebanon. Uh, So there is, in the developing countries, uh, you see that there's an increasing trend uh, for the provision of the social services, healthcare services, education services, and other kinds of social services uh, to be provided by uh, non-state actors. And this creates lots of questions of course so by non-state actors we mean that like religious charities political parties non-governmental organizations providing these services and this create this basically creates lots of questions so what happens uh, when especially when there's sectarian diversity ethnic diversity in a country and also if the organizations that are providing these services also have these identities Uh, lebanon is a great case to study these issues because it is a place of full of like ethnic diversity and organizational diversity. And some of the, ch- uh, the, the charities, the political parties, which provide these services have these sectarian identities. So the question becomes, okay, if I'm a Sunni person, let's say, do I go to the Shia centers? Or if I go to the Shia centers, do I get the equal quality services? So the data that we collected, uh, in 2017 in 70 primary healthcare centers in this country in Lebanon, allows us
0: to answer, such, uh, answer these questions basically. So before we talk about the, uh, the data collection, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the significance of the project and the literatures that you're speaking to when you look at these non-state actors and the provision of social services. Who, which literatures uh, are you hoping to engage? So as you know, there is a big social science literature about the diversity deficit.
2: So if there is ethnic diversity in a society, we social scientists expect that the public services are provided in a less effective and efficient and also less egalitarian ways. Uh, But most of these literature is looking at like horizontal uh, relationships. Like we are all citizens and uh, we are coming from different Uh, sectarian backgrounds let's say or ethnic backgrounds uh, are the services that we as citizens uh, produce together are they good quality high quality as opposed to uh, like a more homogeneous society for instance or uh, when we look at this relationship we look at the exchanges between politicians and citizens but the relationship uh, the exchanges between the citizens and with the, the providers, they can also be ethnically diverse uh, relationships, right? So they, they can also, the provider, the doctor and the citizen, uh, they can also come from uh, diverse backgrounds, different backgrounds. So this is the, I think this is one of the contributions that we make in this article. So are the centers that provide these services and the citizens that benefit from these services It can come from different uh, sectarian backgrounds, and this is, I think, our contribution to the diversity deficit literature.
0: You're really getting down into the micro level at the individual. Exactly, exactly. So tell us how you did it. Then Uh, you said uh, you looked at seventy clinics in Lebanon, and you had a questionnaire. Tell us a little bit about what you were trying to find and how you did it.
2: Yeah, so the data collection was quite uh, comprehensive. So we uh, there is a primary healthcare network. Uh, in Lebanon overseen by the uh, Ministry of uh, Public Health. And it it includes the public uh, centers or centers run by public agencies, centers run by religious charities, uh, centers run by political parties and centers run by secular NGOs. And it is like a network of around like uh, 220 centers. And we basically drew a nationally representative sample uh, and we collected data in 70 uh, of these centers. In the centers, I think our data collection was quite comprehensive because we were able to interview the chief medical officer, the doctors in the center. We had uh, exit interviews with the patients. And also, we also had somebody during the examination sitting in the room uh, for us, just like observing the examination between the patient and the doctor, the the interaction between the patient and the doctor. And this person was uh, like counting the questions asked by the doctor, uh, like looking at the time, how much time is spent during the examination and how many physical, which physical examinations are being undertaken. So this gives us actually a great measure of process quality or the doctor effort uh, during that examination. So we are basically comparing uh, this data across the out-group patients and the in-group patients. So this is this is how we collected the data in Lebanon.
0: And then you were also asking the patients then questions about why they chose uh, which clinic to go to and, and, and which considerations seem to be more important.
2: Exactly. After the observation of the examination, we go to the same patients at the exit of the center, primary healthcare care center. And then we also have an interview, a survey uh, with, the, with the patient. And we ask them questions about them, uh, why they selected the center, some demographic questions that we can then use in the analysis of the demographic controls. So we have, we have lots of data, actually. And then we find out that Uh, First, uh, many people, when they go to the sectarian centers, sect-based centers, by this I mean the centers run by uh, political parties, sect-based political parties and sectarian charities, an overwhelming majority of the people go to in-group centers. So if I'm a Sunni person, for instance, I usually go to a Sunni center. uh, Or if I'm a a Christian uh, person, I usually go to a Christian center. uh, 86% of the patients in sectarian centers were going to in-group centers.
0: And it's not just because those happen to be the ones close by in the neighborhood.
2: No, no. Uh, we also ask them why they go, they go to these places. They usually cite the reasons like uh, affordability and proximity, but when we compare the in-group centers to the out-group centers, uh, we see that like people who go to the in-group centers usually also say that like, they know the doctor or they know a person who knows the doctor. So there's definitely some social network shared social network uh, among the in-group people plays a role in their selection. And for the out-group, for people who go to the out-group centers, they cite specialized care for a reason, Mm -hmm. as a reason for they select into this uh, out-group center. So they basically seek some kind of service they think is available only in the center, and they cite this as a reason why they go to the center.
0: So this seems to give pretty strong support then for at least some kinds of uh, sectarian oriented explanations for behavior.
2: Exactly, exactly. I mean, if, in in Lebanon, you know, uh, the uh, these this sectarian identities are very salient. Uh, but even in that context, people do not usually do not always go to sectarian centers. So fifty four percent of people we interviewed they were in either public centers or in uh, non sectarian ngos but if you go to a sectarian center then you are much more likely to select an in group center for yourself
0: and you should explain how did you go about determining that something was a sectarian center
2: yes sure so we i mean people who know the uh, lebanese context would know that like uh, it is actually quite um, you can observe when you're in a center whether it is run by a sectarian organization or not or a sectarian political party or not because there's usually iconography within these uh, places. But we had two Lebanese uh, coders basically and uh, they, they uh, for, for each of the center, they made a research. They sometimes went to these centers. They sometimes made an internet-based research. And most of the time you can even uh, understand by the name which is uh, by the name of the organization running the center. Uh, So uh, we basically used like the contextual knowledge uh, to make this uh, distinction between sectarian centers and non-sectarian centers.
0: So what do you think then the most important of the findings were?
2: I think there are two, like we said, the patient selection uh, that they, if you select, if you want to go to a sectarian center, you usually go to an Mm in-group center. And the second one is there's also a lower quality when you go to an out-group center. So the, we, we also find evidence uh, for the hypothesis that uh, in-group patients are receiving a higher quality care. So if I'm going to a Sunni center as a Sunni, I am actually more likely to receive 1.5 minutes more examination time from the doctor and one more physical examination on, on average. But if I go to a Shia uh, person, then it's like almost two minutes less examination time on average and one physical examination less. So this is also quite a big uh, effect uh, and you can compare it to like, for instance, uh, the difference is comparable uh, to the difference between a patient who goes there as a pr- for, a, for a primary visit uh, and a patient who goes there for a follow-up visit. So this, the differences are actually quite uh, important.
0: And you survey a number of possible explanations for that: the reputational effects, or you know, kind of similar expectations based on cultural, uh, shared culture. Um, yeah. what, what do you? What did you find as the most compelling explanation for this? So we are also looking into the mechanisms why, as a why
2: would you as an outgroup patient receive less quality care? And we find again, we find effect, we find evidence for the effects of the social networks the people who share the same sectarian identity, the doctor and the patient, are more likely to mention a common friend or a common relative during the examination, also observed by our, by our trained enumerator during the examination. Mm-hmm. And the examinations in which such a common friend or a relative is mentioned uh, are also uh, likely to be higher quality. So probably some kind of like a social network effect is uh, playing a role uh, because the doctors know that like when somebody a common friend or a common relative is mentioned, they are more likely to be monitored informally uh, by the patient. So we find evidence for some kind of like a social network effect. But I must also add that like the, the mechanisms, the exploration of the mechanisms only provide some suggestive evidence. Uh, there, there should be more research to be done about, about this.
0: And so how does this then relate to kind of a cognate literature on uh, the provision of social services as a political strategy um, and, uh, you know, the ways that uh, organizations like Hezbollah or others uh, or the Muslim Brotherhood would use social services to build support? Does this, does this, you know, support that kind of argument or does it raise questions about it? I
2: think it it's certainly supports that argument. Uh, especially if the strategy of the uh, of this organization is uh, providing services for the in groups, we see that this is this is certainly happening. So, and we also, uh, I mean, uh, because of the situation in Lebanon right now, half of our sample was uh, were Syrian patients. We didn't use them in the main analysis, but mm-hmm. we also checked whether there is an out-group disadvantage or in-group favoritism for the Syrian patients as well, we couldn't find any evidence, which basically shows that some of the out-group discrimination that we see in the main results that we see in the Lebanese patients can be attributed to the political proselytism effects, right? So um, the outgroups if they are Syrians, they do not receive any hmm. uh, disadvantage. But if they are Lebanese, they do receive this disadvantage quality care. So uh, this also shows that like at least some motivation uh, can be attributed to the to the political proselytism of these organizations or just trying to garner political support,
0: basically. So I think it definitely lends support to these arguments. Last question then would be, you know, now that you've done this research, where where do you think uh, the study of this sort of thing should go from here?
2: Um. Definitely, the mechanisms, like what leads to this, uh, what leads to this difference, uh, is it political proselytism? Is it just like a trust relationship between the patient and the doctor? Uh, some kind of like shared pre- shared preferences, taste. Uh, this is, I think, an important question. But we should also look at the organizational diversity, not only the ethnic diversity, because as I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, there's also like a huge organizational diversity. There are different types of organizations. Some organizations are motivated by political uh, political reasoning. Some are just like they, they just have religious charities. So do we also see quality differences between different types of organizations is I think an important question. and this is also something that we want to explore in the next papers of this project.
0: Well, great. We've been speaking with Etud Sasmas about his uh, new article, co-authored with Harvard University's Melanie Kamet. Uh, Etud, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having
0: me. This is the Pull Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now on our book segment by Omar Ashour of the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies author of the new book, How ISIS Fights Military Tactics in Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Egypt, which was just published by Edinburgh University Press. Omar, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So tell us about the book. Well, there's an uh, academic story and
3: there's a personal story. The academic one is, uh, yes. The academic one is basically, uh, it is an organization that uh, defies a significant amount of the literature on how insurgent and insurgent group can be successful. Uh, Very violent, very extremist, uh, limited popular support, limited to no popular support, uh, limited, um, uh, no state support. Uh, The geography in which it fights is not rugged in the traditional way, and I'll explain that later. And, uh, and as, an, as I argue partly in the book, no strategy, no grand strategy in a sense that it's, it, its resources does not match its objectives, yet extremely combat effective, yet um, mass, despite being massively outnumbered, uh, uh, massively outgunned, widely hated, managed to occupy over 120 cities, towns and villages, from Marawi in the southern Philippines all the way to Sabrata in western Libya, and uh, against overwhelming odds, managed to uh, fight for years with a coalition of uh, 77 countries, four major intergovernmental organizations, and this is not even counting the uh, armed non-state actors, some of which are highly combat effective like Hezbollah uh, or other state actors such as Russia and Iran who who are fighting it. So that was my uh, academic dilemma, if you wish. The personal dilemma or the personal uh, part is that I was in in 2012, I was in Cairo, middle of the Arab Spring, seeing things change and hoping really for two things. One is a fourth wave of democratization that hits uh, hits the region. And two, perhaps a second wave of de-radicalization Mm -hmm. of collective de-radicalization that you saw that began in the mid 90s. So you see more and more violent extremist organizations transforming into uh, non-violence and reformism. But then I saw a propaganda video of the Nusra Front uh, in Aleppo where a a position uh, or an, an operational headquarters of the regime forces Uh, very heavily guarded, multiple uh, 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 belts of obstacles and hurdles surrounding it, well-guarded. And the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, failed to take it for weeks. And uh, the Nusra Front, the uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, lined up uh, about three or four uh, suicide um, vehicle-borne IEDs uh, three uh, three small cars, and uh, if I remember correctly, a big truck. Uh, the three the first three cars took uh, the obstacles, removed the obstacles, basically, allowing the way for the truck. The truck hit the building, the operational headquarters, and the fight was over, and then capitalized by uh, a platoon-sized formation. Some of them were suicide bombers as well. So the whole thing uh, ended in about 10 minutes. And here I was... Uh, this was, you know, the, the moment was my son, Zhu, believes, you know, that that strategy without tactics is just or sorry, tactics without strategy mm-hmm. is just noise before defeat. Here I saw a bunch of tactics, basically, uh, employed in a very sharp, agile and adaptive way uh, and solving a borderline strategic problem or an operation at this point problem. But then these bunch of tactics kept on growing, kept on being exported and um, and uh, and reached a level uh, where I think made a uh, almost a strategic difference. And uh, and I was thinking back then, then if if these tactics were mimicked, um, exported, uh, learned elsewhere, then we will we'll probably won't see a, a fourth wave of democratization or a second wave of de-radicalization, but we'll see something else where uh, armed non-state actors um, basically get more and more empowered to challenge armed state actors beat them in the battlefield with limited resources uh, and they will there will be always this thinking that I could win uh, by such tactics by limited resources without necessarily a lot of popular support or state sponsorship um, and basically the, the the formula is is leading in the very opposite direction from you know managing the conflict by a constitutional and legal and Nonviolent means. So that was my personal mm-hmm. dilemma to 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 write it, and I wanted to understand how does that happen, how how did we reach this stage one, and then how these bunch of tactics work, um, and why? And I chose the most extreme case, which uh, was the case of ISIS, basically, uh, which is not one organization, as you know. It's, uh, right, like, um, right. Yeah. So I looked at uh, basically the. Um, um, the about 17 urban battles in four countries, uh, in Fallujah, in Mosul, in Ramadi, in Raqqa, the city under governorate, in Derna, in Sirte, and in uh, northeastern Sinai. And um, I try to um, understand how ISIS fought in these 17 urban battles in, in these four countries via looking at partly their... On one end, their publications, about over 300 of their Arabic language publications, including 228 of another magazine, uh, and about 200 battle-relevant videos and photographic reports. Uh, and and then I, I looked at the other side, which is basically uh, fighters and soldiers who fought it, who engaged it. Uh, this is by doing a total of 58 interviews, but 31 of them engaged ISIS directly in, in a firefight, um, and then the rest were advisors uh, or witnesses that that saw uh, or one or more of these seventeen uh, urban battles.
0: And so you really do see this this puzzle of ISIS being able to uh, to stand up to and defeat much more powerful or conventionally defined powerful enemies. So, and and you don't see this as just being something inherent to Islamist groups in general. You see something specific about ISIS.
3: Yes, it's. Uh, I, I took ideology from the beginning. I took ideology out of the,
0: uh, out of the analysis.
3: I just tried to classify uh, ISIS and basically said that you know the brutality and the, and the viciousness will, will only count in in one of the factors in the end, which is the the moral force to use a uh, Clausewitzian term uh, and uh, in terms of the the psychological warfare uh, impact but uh, the rest is mainly uh, tactical, basically a bunch of tactics, techniques and procedures that they applied them in multiple countries uh, fashioned their force according to them um, and then uh, managed to Uh, turn raids into raids, fortifications, and then occupations of towns. Um, And then to try to get them out of these uh, towns, uh, you will need, like what happened in Raqqa, 40,000 artillery shells, the same number of, or more than the number of shells that were used, of artillery shells that were used to occupy Iraq in 2003. Uh, This is to liberate only one one town. Um, So... It's a, as I describe in the book, it's a modi operandi of of some sort. You know, you, you, you have around, uh, I tried to classify it into three strategies, a conventional strategy, a guerrilla warfare strategy, and a terrorism strategy. And within these three uh, strategies, you have uh, about 15 tactics that are, uh, you know, not 15 tactics, 15 categories of tactics that were used. And then a way to build and rebuild power after you, or build and rebuild force, after you get completely destroyed. So they the are almost completely destroyed. And one example I give in the second chapter in the Iraqi case, where uh, ISI, the Islamic State in Iraq, was uh, almost, uh, 2010, was almost done. Uh, I think General uh, Ray Oderno mentioned that uh, 36 out of its 42 most senior commanders were either killed or captured. Um, and less than 1,000 uh, fighters were active back in 2010. 2014, the four years later, uh, the organization took over the second uh, largest city in Iraq, Mosul, while fighting on the offensive at least 10 to 1. This is the, 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 if you took the range, this is the least possible manpower ratio. They're fighting 10 to 1. And the, the, the more qualitative uh, parts, they were decapitated uh, 6th of June, they lost the uh, 4th of June. They, the head of the military council, Abu al Bilawi, was killed, um, uh, well, detonated himself uh, after being almost captured by the Iraqi Federal Police. Um, and uh, the Iraqi Federal Police and uh, some of the other intelligence, uh, Iraqi intelligence services were with the army, mm-hmm. knew exactly that, the, 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 that there will be an attack in early June on Mosul. So we know this from the parliamentary investigation that happened. And there was two divisions, an Iraqi federal police division and an army division stationed in and around Mosul. So no surprise, decapitated fighting to at least 10 to one at max uh, over 50 to one. Um, and uh, as opposed to what was said, there were no tanks. They were fighting with soft skinned uh, technicals um, on, on so I I I, just, I go into the details of how Mosul was taken, and then how Mosul was taken was liberated. Um, so all, all, all when you put all the pieces together, then there is there's a big puzzle there, a big question mark there on how this happened, and I try to explain this in the, in the book as much as I could in the concluding chapter.
0: You go through a number of levels of analysis as you as you craft that explanation. So you do look at ideology and um, and beliefs, but you also look at the organizational level and specifically also the kinds of individuals who were in these fighting positions. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what ISIS looks like from your perspective in terms of the individuals, the organization, as they, as they enter the battlefield.
3: So, uh, it, uh, okay. So there the, the are more of like the, the patterns, uh, in the battlefield and more, uh, uh, there, there, there are uh, uniqueness uh, in each of the 17 battles. Uh, on one end, in terms of, I didn't look that much on the individual levels, but I just tried to uh, to count the individuals who were uh, military capable or mi- mi- military, let's say relevant. Uh, so I, I describe, I classified those as uh, the, the dogmatist types, m- many suicide bombers. Who made a difference, and I explain um, how some of them made like major differences in the Battle of Mosul, in the Battle of Raqqa, um, and then also uh, what I describe as the the opportunists, who specific mid ranks, uh, mid ranking commanders, and some senior commanders who were also uh, very effective in terms of logistical support, in terms of uh, um, uh, uh, gathering some sort of uh, uh uh, uh, oppor- uh, so, uh sorry taking opportunities uh, tactical and operational opportunities and uh and very uh very daring uh, in that approach but they they, they weren't really uh, uh, that much of uh, that much of believers in a way uh and also i i talk a little bit uh, a little bit about the experience and how the leadership specifically was was critical in transferring knowledge uh, between um, uh, between the multiple provinces between quotations uh, uh, of ISIS. So you have experienced leaderships coming from Iraq, like uh, Abu Nabil and Bari, uh, going to Libya, uh, more or less. And then after that, you, you see uh, very similar tactics used in uh, battles of Iraq on the, in, in Derna specifically, and later on insert, but it was not Abu Nabil because he was killed in Derna in 2015. Um, so, so you had these uh, uh, in, in individual micro-level analysis, but that was not my main uh, focus. I was just more or less trying to explain how these individuals mattered uh, when it ca- when it came to the battle outcomes uh, uh, that I was trying to explain. My main focus was on the organizational level, on the meso level. Uh, so, this is what I was really trying to to focus: like, how did how did this organization was able to rise from the ashes? Uh, rebuild its forces once again, and then start to uh, fight much powerful enemies and then defeat them. And then it took them a very long time and the destruction of many uh, cities, towns to to retake back these cities and towns.
0: So what about the organizational level is so distinctive or unique uh, to ISIS?
3: So uh, what makes it unique is really uh, a few things. My hypothesis was like, basically, it's a, a group of tactics and strategies. Uh, and what, ha- what really happens is that the organization makes three strategic shifts uh, from conventional to guerrilla to terrorism, and then back from terrorism to guerrilla to conventional. Okay. But within these strategies, there's a, a, a group of uh, about 15 categories of tactics that it repeats but also, I on an operational level, I was trying to understand um, how it builds uh, its force. Its force. So I was talking on the on the operation level. Is that it's, uh, When it enters a town or village, how it collects intelligence uh, locally, and then how it attempts to absorb collectively uh, the uh, insurgent forces uh, there, and sometimes the, the not so insurgent forces. So in the case of Sirte, and in the case uh, in some of the cases in, in Mosul. Um, it attracted uh, former regime loyalists, uh, like in the case of the Gaddafi regime or the case of the Ba'ath regime. Um, how it uh, builds up its arsenal by uh, looting um, mainly the arms and the uh, warehouses of uh, the, the regime forces, but also of the, uh, uh, the, the, non-state, the rebel forces. Um, mm-hmm. And that was happening in, in Syria uh, and in Libya. Attempted in Egypt, but not so successfully. Uh, this is where the Sinai province came short, uh, and then also the uh, the process of knowledge transfer or know-how transfer that was happening so fast, um, not just in once in one country, like between the provinces or the cities or the towns, because the you know, different formations operate uh, operate there, but also between um, Countries that are relatively far away, between Iraq and Libya, for example, or between uh, Syria and, and, and Egypt, um, and then the, uh, the also the uh, radicalization and recruitment that was that, that was happening. So this is on an operational level, um, and this is you can call it on a, on a on a state level, on when they enter a state, or the, this is what usually happens, but also on on let's say a um, a city level. Um, uh, partly what uh, the the, the main example of that was what happened in Fallujah Uh, you would have a um, Fallujah 2014 so what you you will see is uh, what I call soften and creep operations so you you soften your uh, your enemies uh, mainly by a series of uh, terrorism tactics and assassinations including assassinations and um, uh, car bombs um, uh, and so on and then creeping slowly on their on the territories on the neighborhoods uh, to to make sure that they are, they don't that they're not there and they, usually the choice of neighborhoods is very strategic it's done in a way uh to make uh, each rebel group or each unit within a rebel group unable to support each other once isis attacked them um so the 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 mapping is 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 very was very clear to 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 make Each uh, any of ISIS rivals unable to support each other. Um, This was repeated in Fallujah, repeated in Derna, unsuccessfully, successfully in Fallujah, unsuccessfully in Derna, and elsewhere. And then uh, after that, they often creep. And then if they need to, and they only did, they mainly did this in in Fallujah, they can fight in coalitions. So in Fallujah, they fought in a a coalition of about six other organizations. Um, And once they are successful, uh, within this coalition, they quickly tried to... Uh, first, they, they declared victory to themselves. So in Fallujah, they declared victory in, in January 2014, but they did not really control the town except in March 2014. Uh, and when they when they do this, they um, between January and March, what they were doing is they were liquidating, basically, the coalition partners, the, the, the insurgent organizations mm-hmm. that, that fought with them. Uh, they were liquidating them. Um, liquidating the leadership, trying to recruit from their uh, ranks, uh, so kind of uh, uh, either join us or uh, leave the town or get killed or get imprisoned. And uh, it was by March, they were quite successful in that. That was repeated uh, elsewhere. It was mainly successful in Iraq and in Raqqa City, but it was a failure elsewhere uh, that that, modus operandi, if you wish, operational level. And then also what uh, what was very unique on, on that level, on the operational level, is uh, there was a cult of counteroffensive. The organization does not lose a neighborhood, uh, regardless of where it is, regardless if it's rational or irrational to try to retake it back, unless it tries to launch a counteroffensive and retake it back. And if you shout here to Ken Pollock. Who was very clear in saying uh, Arabs don't are not so good at counteroffensive. Arab armies, uh, you know, in the record, they were not so good at counteroffensive. So th- this is uh, one of the unique features of uh, of that organization in the sense that um, the the that I call it a cult of counteroffensives. Mm-hmm. Um, in a sense that it's not even um, sometimes it doesn't. If you look at what happened, it does not make a military sense. Um, but uh, but somehow it succeeded. Uh, part of this, for example, is in Mosul, 2014. Um, the ISIS was almost defeated then uh, by the regular Iraqi forces, uh, but somehow, uh, but partly because some of the counterinsurgency uh, uh, tactics that were used by the Iraqi forces, including attacking. Populated areas with Apache helicopters that cause more deaths and therefore cause more anger and therefore cause more support to um, some of the uh, some of the ISIS units in these specific neighborhoods. Um, uh, but aside from that, it, it, because of this cult, they were able to they managed to to, to take Mosul and, and the attack on Mosul. Then this is what I forgot to mention as well. There, there was no strategic plan to take over Mosul. The plan was to take over two neighborhoods, the most Western uh, uh, neighborhoods of Mosul, just on the edge of the desert, to be able to you know, control them and then retreat back to the desert when necessary. But then because of the of this cult and because of uh, uh, multiple other factors that I go through in, in chapter two and then try to analyze later on, um, they were able to take the, the city. Um, the the, the the amount of tactical innovations of the organization, as, as I mentioned, about fifteen categories, uh, from the IED intensive tactics to the vehicle-borne IED intensive tactics to the suicide vehicle-borne IED intensive tactics, uh, and how they turned all this into from an urban terrorism weapon to a uh, a battlefield weapon um, that was uh, a uh, that affected the battle outcomes. Despite being, you know, uh, in an inferior position at the beginning, uh, the tactics of the uh, suicide guerrilla formations, the so-called Inri in between quotations, which also was to a certain degree a mix of terrorism, guerrilla tactics, and uh, and um, and conventional warfare, because it's the Inri or the the has has more or less a uh, something like a special force uh, uh, mandate in a way, but also he's a suicide bomber. But also is a guerrilla in a way, um, and then also the, the 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 sniping tactics, which was employed uh, between certain and Mosul, uh, in ways that probably uh, very uh, uh, um, kind of go through them uh, in the chapters, but in ways that were uh, quite quite unique for an armed non-state actor uh, in this region. Uh, add to that the drone tactics, which was uh, which were used as the, 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 the drones and the UCAVs were, were used as you know, relaying messages as, uh, as part of uh, intelligence, uh, ISR intelligence surveillance, surveillance and reconnaissance, as part of targeting uh, or uh, identifying the targets and, and, and coordinating the attack on them by being guides to suicide bombers and suicide cars uh, to direct attacks, which and this was the least damage when they, when they tried to, uh, to, uh, to do direct attacks. Uh, but they are also used as decoys to more or less fo- make the attention of the, uh, of the forces, of the regular forces, on them while there's a, a more serious attack coming by a, an S Vivid or a suicide vehicle um, targeting the horses. So the, when you get into these uh, more tactical level details, the organization showed a lot of uh, innovation, that including uh, I go through some of the you know the guerrilla formation tactics, the artillery tactics, the um, anti-tank guided missiles tactics, the anti-aircraft or, or uh, autocannons tactics, the manpads tactics, some of the assassinations, uh, tunnel tactics. Tunnel, of course, the, the tunnel part is uh, where the uh, I said in the beginning that the idea that that the you know, back uh, David Galula's uh, statement that the insurgents, if they could not get help from the geography, they are doomed to failure before they start. So ISIS puts a challenge on that, but then I, uh, when I th- thought about it, actually, yes, there's, a, there's part a the challenge on that because mostly they're fighting in flatlands and there's no, there's no help from geography. But uh, in a way, uh, the tunnels showed that they create their own geography. You know, they, they enter the, the towns, the cement jungles and they, they build their own geography under the, or the subterranean or between buildings, uh, and then use it against their their enemies. So in a way, they, they need to modify this part uh, yeah. a bit because it was a yeah, an urban uh, rugged geography in a way. Uh, so basically, we, 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 how how is, is that organization unique? This is part of its uh, of what it uh, did, and the, and the outcomes the, the outcomes were very clear. I, I talk a bit about. Um, uh, the Iraqi case: How did it uh, it compensated the loss of leadership? Because uh, I had a schedule of the the, the, milit- the heads of the military council that were lost. Um, so ISIS was being decapitated while being on the rise at the same time. It's a challenge also to the leadership decapitation argument because uh, that that was partly what what was happening. But how did they compensate by by trying to break? uh, uh mid ranks and some senior ranks from the from from jails so they're breaking door of the walls campaign in summer uh, of, of 2012 uh where you saw i i haven't seen anything competitive to that when you try about eight attempted or successful prison breaks across Iraq for a year between July 2012 and July 2013 uh, freeing uh, over 800 imprisoned cadres by sheer force it's not it's not uh, it's not like uh, you know the provisional IRA, uh a maze escape in eighty three or the uh, Punta Carates, uh, going to Pomados in seventy one. You know, by, by trick and by, by by trying to deceive and uh, a bit of deception and infiltration. Um, that was not the case. That was that was sheer force. Um, so to try to to do all this uh, again with very limited resources, uh, my explanation: what look at how they fight and look at the, 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 the tactics they're trying to use with the operational level attempts. There is no strategy, again, because they, they cannot win strategically and they cannot secure any, they're good at the art of fighting, they're not good at the art of uh, conducting the war as uh, you know, uh, Field Marshal Montgomery said. Um, so in terms of the, the, there is there's, there's an inability to secure any strategic victory. Um, But there is an ability to uh, pull upsets, uh, pull military upsets that that are bordering on uh, uh, on, uh, unbelievable.
0: So one of the interesting things about the book is you don't only look at Iraq and Syria, but you extend the analysis out to uh, Libya and Egypt. And the results there were a bit different uh, than they were in kind of the heartland of ISIS. Uh, maybe say a little bit about the Libyan and uh, Egyptian cases where things maybe didn't go so well.
3: Yes, I, uh, I try to, uh, uh, to explain uh, the, you know, how they fought also in, in places where they were uh, weaker in a way. Um uh, they were already weak in in syria and in iraq relative to you know the regular forces and relative to the other insurgent forces uh because they were still foreigners in syria and uh, you know, isis entered syria with six persons uh, isi back then before isis um to to establish the, the nusra front and uh, three or only three of them were syrians the rest were non-syrians and the three who were Syrians spent a lot of time outside of syria they were bordering on foreign um but uh in, in terms of Egypt and, and Libya, um, I looked at mainly Derna and, and Sirt in Libya. And uh, in Libya, they, uh, the main issue is that, first they try to use very similar tactics to the, to the ones used in Iraq. Um, and the tactics were successful, the operations were not so successful. So when you enter a town and you're, you're mainly uh, trying to terrorize all the other um, um, insurgent and rebel groups uh, like what happened in Derna and then creep on the territories, when you are outnumbered, uh, you're, you're, uh, many of your uh, uh, individuals are foreigners. Um, what you're doing is you're basically forming a coalition against you and this is what happened in Derna um in insert there was more success uh, for different reasons is that they they played on the tribal dimension uh, they made this look as if it's uh, it's uh, nasrathan clans coming from the west uh, which is mainly the main force that that, that fought them in uh, in 2015 uh, via the 166th uh, battalion uh, and this is composed mainly of nasrathan clans um and uh, and and f- fighting against uh, the clans of cert uh, the clans of Sirte, uh, uh, who, uh, in a way, did not like the revolution, uh, many of them, uh, because it uh, they they thought that the, the, the revolution came to uh, to discriminate against them, uh, and also the the ISIS rhetoric and Gaddafi rhetoric had a lot of intersections. It was anti-democratic, anti-Western, um, extremely brutal. And, uh, and you, you have some of the loyalists uh, identified with it, some of the Gaddafi loyalists identified with this. And you had some of the senior figures in Gaddafi's regime coming out on TV and saying basically, you know, on Egyptian TV stations, uh, that ISIS is uh, you know the, the, the nation, the Ummah needs ISIS. You know? right. And, um, and when, when you make these sort of declarations, your followers uh, insert who are from the same uh, uh, tribe and clan, I may see it okay, so maybe it's not that bad. And uh, so they were successful in Sirte for, for different reasons, um, but also they were they, they outmaneuvered uh, most of the uh, of the local forces in Sirte who could have, um, you know. But again, it's uh, so. So in these two countries, they played on, on weaknesses. They were not as successful. Uh, in in the uh, Egypt case, was the, the most perplexing for me because they, they, in the Egyptian case. Um, it, it's, the, the organization is located in an area where there is no supportive geography because mostly you know, the, the, the mountains in Sinai are the, in the west and in the south, the high mountains. Uh, so there's like the Halal Mountain in the, in the north, uh, but it's, it's, it's not the main theater of, of, uh, of operation. Um, the, at best, the, uh, the tribes and the clans there are are split, Um, the organization is fighting a a very large army uh, and centralized uh, army with uh, huge resources um, uh, supported externally by multiple uh, international and great powers and and also regional powers. Um, And the the organization is in a way besieged So and and it's a small area it's not a you know we are not we're talking about one governorate uh, north sinai and three districts the main action isn't or the, the main uh, battles are in and three districts only in in one governorate so Rafa Sheikh Zweed and and uh, and elarish um now they expanded a bit to to the west so they they reached bir, bir labd and, and back um but uh But this is when you think, okay, so it's isolated, limited resources, large forces, external support, no geography. So you think it will end soon. And it it. didn't. I think it was uh, I have a quote from the uh, from one of the the, the generals, uh, General Ahmed Wasfi, the commander of the Egypt Second Army in Mm -hmm. 2nd of October 2013. And he was saying that the operations in Sinai are over. (laughs) and and we could have also finished terrorism there in 6 hours and then i have a quote from the uh, the headline of a neber newsletter in uh, in february 2020 that's basically you know uh, claiming a certain a battle victory over uh, and, and and multiple attacks so it, it, the, the the case of egypt was very perplexing i tried to explain it as much as i can and i still think that it, it merits more uh, more explanations, but also it boils down to how how they, they fashioned their force, how did they absorb some of the organizations there. And then absorb. this is collective absorption, collective uh, recruitment, if you wish, of, of factions within ABM, the Ansar Bayt al maqdis And then after that, uh, individual uh, recruitment based, based on... Or, what happened in Egypt, the military coup, uh, and then uh, the, the waves of repression post uh, July, 2013, uh, managed to make individual re- recruitment, managed to make, uh, you know, factional uh, recruitment. They did not absorb the whole organization, but major parts of it, you know, the main factions in it. Uh, how so the, the looting was, they were not very successful in, in, in looting. They uh, successful in looting small weapons, mainly. So nothing like the you know, the Abram's tank, tanks in in, uh, um, in Iraq and the the t72s and uh, in, uh, in Syria and so on so nothing that, that major uh, i think they, they, they only managed to take one tank in the whole from uh, 20 since their declaration 2014 till now that um, was destroyed um, but uh, but at the same time um, the organization survived. And survived against odds that, uh, uh, if you did the calculation, this is not in the in, in battle, but the, the calculation of the, uh, the distribution of uh, the Egyptian armed forces uh, east of the canal and on the canal cities. Uh, we are talking about at least a hundred to one, at least manpower ratio. Um, so, uh, so then uh, again, big question mark in the case of Egypt.
0: Uh, It's really very, very interesting. Um, So we've been speaking with Omar Ashour about his new book, How ISIS Fights, a very detailed tactical study of ISIS and its various campaigns. And uh, Omar, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us.
3: My pleasure. Thank you very much.